to Life Lessons. We're Jen and Sherry. I'm Jen Stevens, a retired teacher of 28 years and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Fast Feast Repeat. And I'm Sherry Bullock. I've worked in healthcare for over 26 years, and I've been an active volunteer for many organizations. We're both wives and moms, and let's face it, we're the glue that holds it all together in our homes. In our careers, we have always been problem solvers who help others. And that's what we'll be doing here, answering questions you didn't know you had, one smart solution at a time. We're always looking for ways to make our lives easier, help us be more productive, or improve our health and wellness. So let's live our best lives one day at a time, and let's have some fun along the way. Hi, everybody. We are so glad you're here today. Welcome to episode 59 of the Life Lessons podcast. How are you doing today, Sherry? I'm doing really well. 59 sounds so high. I know. It's like we're getting there. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Wow. I don't, I mean, like I do our, you know, prep stuff and I typed 59, but something about hearing you say 59, I was like, wow. Just wait till we get to triple digits. It'll be here before you know it. Yeah. I know. I always think it's like crazy when I look at your I Have Stories podcast and you're up in the hundreds and I'm and like, people are like, goodness. Who's the person who, you know, ate whatever? And I'm like, I don't know. I've talked to 190 people by now, you know, because I'm, I'm way ahead with my recording. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're in your third year of it. It's shocking. It's it's amazing. I'm so excited, but I can't remember anymore. I got a lot of names in my head. Well, and you know, also, if you have to keep in mind how long we've been having our communities, like 2015 is when I started my first Facebook community, right? And so I have names in my head from the Facebook communities from 2015 through 2021, plus names in my head from intermittent fasting stories, plus now new names from our Delayed on Deny community. And I'm like, well, I know that name sounds familiar, but I can't remember. (laughs) It's too many names. Are you enjoying your new sun porch or your new uh, screened-in porch? Are you able to use it? You know, sometimes when it's a warm-ish kind of day, I go out there. You know, we're recording this in December. So I was out there day before yesterday. We had a warm December day. It was in the 70s the other day here. It was. So I went out there and I did my work on the screen porch on Monday. I I had my computer out there and then I sat and it was really nice. But then today, Will and I tried to go out there and have our morning coffee, and it was like, I was, we were like, no. I look over, he's shivering. I'm like, we're going inside. <laughs> I love that he comes over and has coffee with his mama. That's so sweet. My baby's sick in Colorado, so. He told me he's sicker than he's ever been, but he was a very sick baby, so I, I dispute that. <laughs> anyway. As a man. Right. He's, the, um, he's man sick. <laughs> he's 22 now, so. Same, same as Will. They're both 22. They still come to their mamas when they need something, right? That's good. Well, uh, Jen and I, we want to give a shout out to Terry for her contribution to the ongoing production costs for the podcast. She sent us a little surprise this week, and every little bit helps us continue to bring you weekly life lessons. So thank you, Terry. And now it's time for our weekly good news segment. Today, I would like to give a shout out to a community member. I caught her doing something good. Lynn, who you know, Lynn, Jen. And she was on the Intermittent Fasting Stories podcast. It's like the ones I had at the beginning, I will never forget, right? But as we started going on, I have to look back. And when I read the show notes, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember. So I always say her last name is Houston in my head, but I believe after listening to her on, on the podcast, it's... Is it Houston? Well, it's H-U. There's no O. That is maybe Huston, but I could completely be wrong. For some reason, I have this thing in my head like that I've always said it wrong. But anyway, Lynn... We love you, and I caught you doing something good. Lynn recently moved to Savannah, Georgia from Nevada. Did you know that, Jen? I did know that, yeah. Okay. Well, you're not on Facebook, so I didn't know if you knew that. She's in our community, and she posted about that. She's in the DDD community, the new one. Lynn is really big on a stand-up bicycle called an elliptigo. 
and she loves it. She rides it all over the country. And uh, she was out riding and she posted on Facebook that um, she was out riding her bicycle and she ran across a bag full of gift cards and like loyalty cards for stores. And luckily there was an address label inside the bag. So she looked it up on her phone and rode her bike across town to the person's house to return all of their cards to them. And I just think so many people wouldn't have taken time to do that. And I love that one of our community members did. So I caught you doing something good, Lynn. Yay, Lynn. That doesn't surprise me at all, knowing Lynn. She was a teacher. She's just retired from teaching um, is one reason she was able to make that move. And she taught at a one-room schoolhouse, which I thought was just so very cool. Do you remember that from her story? You know, we, we think about those as being something from the past, but in certain more rural parts of the country, they're still having those one-room schoolhouses. So I'm not surprised a teacher's like, I'm going to take, take these back. It wouldn't just be a teacher, obviously, but someone who's a teacher would be very likely to. <laughs> That's great, Lynn. Uh, not surprising at all. So listeners, we need your stories. Send your good news story to connect at lifelessonscommunity.com. We want to hear about companies that have given you exceptional customer service. Give a shout out to a special someone in your life. Tell us an amazing story or share anything that might be inspirational to fellow listeners. We look forward to hearing from you and sharing your good news in an upcoming episode. Or maybe Sherry is watching you. She's going to share your good news story. Da, da, da. <laughs> Before we get to the life lesson of the week, we want to take a minute to tell you about one of the companies that makes it possible for us to bring you the podcast. And today I want to talk about Beauty Counter. Surprise. For many years, I was very proactive about beauty products that not only perform well, but that doesn't cause any potential long-term harm to my health. And in my search for clean beauty products, I found myself buying various products from all sorts of different companies. And I was continually researching them to make sure they were truly safe and I wasn't being greenwashed. I couldn't buy them all from the same place. And it was honestly stressful. And then you would get something and it wouldn't work and would make your face break out. And I mean, whatever. And I kind of almost gave up. And then a year ago, I switched all my makeup and skincare products to Beauty Counter. I use the entire counter timeline and I love it. My skin has never been as beautiful as it is now. It's truly luminous, bright, and clear. And I used to have a lot of sun damage, brown spots all over my face. They are virtually gone. You really cannot, I mean, if I'm in really bright light with no makeup on, I can still kind of see remnants of them, but on a day-to-day basis, you can't see them. And I don't, I still go out in the sun. I'm always going to be in the sun. My face has stayed clearer even through the summertime. And Beauty Counter was founded on a mission to make skincare and makeup products that are safe for your skin and for you. They have vetoed the use of over 1,800 different ingredients that are used today due to health concerns. When I buy from them, it simplifies my life and it's one less thing for me to worry about. And because of Beauty Counter's generous refund policy, I felt comfortable taking the plunge last year and trying them out, and I have never been sorry. So if you're hesitant, just know that if it doesn't work for you for any reason, you can contact them and they can facilitate a refund for you. The Skin Twin Foundation and their concealer are awesome, and I love them. They don't cake, crease, or settle into fine lines. It's like your skin, but better. Visit beautycounter.com forward slash Sherry Bullock to learn more. That's B-U-L-L-O-C-K. And, you know, one thing about the foundation, people are probably worried, like, am I really going to be able to find a foundation online? But I just use, they have like this little questionnaire that you do or whatever, a guide, and it really, it worked for me. I will say it's hard on a mobile device to find the shade finder. Oh, I did it on the computer. So, yes, it's easier on a computer, but if you're on a mobile device and you can't find the shade finder, email me at... Uh, sherry at lifelessonscommunity.com. I will send you the link to the Shade Finder. It's really, if you use it, you almost can't do wrong. Or just go to a computer and find it there. (laughs) Yes. Well, you know, I'm learning so many people don't have computers these days. That's true. You're exactly right. But the shade that I got was perfect. I mean, like I did it and I'm like, yeah, this isn't going to work. It's going to be weird. But it was perfect. And also, as you mentioned, they have that guarantee the refund policy. So if it was wrong, you could exchange it and get something that is right. So you don't have to worry. You just might have to wait a little longer to get the right one. 
And now it's time for our life lesson of the week. This week, we are going to talk with Jay Grunke, a certified Feldenkrais practitioner, which is a running technique expert, and she is the founder of The Balanced Runner. She is known as the running form guru and has helped runners from beginner to Olympian uh, relieve pain and improve their performance. She specializes in helping runners whose problems have persisted despite medical treatment. Today, she joins us to offer insight and guidance to our listeners, whether you are a new or an experienced runner, and to help them learn how to better enjoy running, improve their running performance, all while avoiding injury or pain. So welcome, Jay. Thank you very much. Thrilled to be here. So share with our listeners just a little bit about your background. I found it really fascinating and um, how you ended up as the running form guru. Well, um, it happened because of dance, actually, which is not the normal route to all of this. I was a professional modern dancer, was working with a choreographer who was doing pieces in large outdoor spaces and that required a lot of running and a lot of endurance, which is not necessarily a common demand for a dancer. That tends to be more anaerobic for dance. I mean, you know, it varies a lot, but this was like being out on the grass for half an hour running around and doing stuff without a break. And that was, I was just dying by the end of each performance. And I thought this is, you don't want to be just dying in front of an audience. That's not fun. No. So I thought, well, I better start training aerobically. So I have the stamina. And so then the obvious thing to do was running. It just felt horrendous. And that made me mad because I ought to be able to run, right? I could do all sorts of things that normal people couldn't do. You know, like physical skill was part of, you know, was my job. Why couldn't I do this fundamental human gait? And so I got curious. And I'm an engineer's daughter. And so how is the most interesting question to me? How do you run? And I was a dancer, so I naturally thought about technique. And I thought, well, then there's something I don't know about how to run, how I'm supposed to move when I run, that other people do know. And so I started studying the runners who looked comfortable and smooth and graceful, you know, and what was different between them and what I was doing. And at the time I was training to become a Feldenkrais practitioner, which is actually, it's not running specific. And in fact, is very little known in the running world. It's a movement education method. So it's used in all kinds of settings where people need to learn to move and function better from like infants with cerebral palsy to people with multiple sclerosis to people who've had injuries and accidents, even fairly cataclysmic ones, even for animals, it's used. That's fascinating. You know, you said earlier, I should know how to run because like it's basic fundamental movement. Everybody should know how to run. But do you know, I had a bad pelvic injury. I tore my SI joint ligaments and anyways, was in lots of rehab. And I went to this, like a physiotherapist or something. And the first thing she said was, well, first we need to teach you how to walk. And I said, what? And she said, you don't, she said, why do you walk like that? And I said, walk like that? What? And she said, you lead with your pelvis when you walk, which is all wrong. And so I literally for weeks had to go in there and just walk and she would watch me and correct me. And I did have to learn how to walk differently. And the funny thing is, is I saw my sister a couple years ago and I watched her walk and I realized she walks exactly the way I used to walk. But now I notice it where before it was natural to me. So, I mean, people think like you just get up and you do it. But I mean, I'm assuming your body gets trained, your muscles get trained everything gets trained. And if you train the wrong way, then you kind of get stuck. So do you, you unstick people? Yeah. I mean, so human, like baby chicks know how to walk when they come out of the eggshell. Lots of animals, humans do not, we learn, you know, like this, the trade-off, we have these huge brains. So we're born unfinished and we're born with the equipment to learn rather than with the already wired reflexes to do stuff. And so that means that we learned how to, obviously, (laughs) learned how to walk and we learned how to run. And um, it was a certain kind of learning that, you know, it didn't depend on anyone explaining it to us. It depended on experiment and exploration. I mean, what do you see a baby spend all their time doing? And feedback loops and, you know, trying to do the thing and it works or it doesn't. So learning from that, it's not a like 
analytical process at that age. And it turns out not at any age, like real movement learning still has the same hallmarks of exploration, experiment, feedback, sensation, no matter your age. And when you have a problem running, when it's not comfortable for you, then there's some sort of movement habit that you're bringing with you into running, just like you do, you know, just like your experience with walking, that you don't even know you have. It's so natural to you. It just happens automatically. And it's totally getting in the way. So fundamentally, anybody, including me, especially me coming from dance, like dancers hate to run. And there's a very good reason for that, because the movement habits that you develop doing ballet-based dance, which a modern dancer, you know, as a modern dancer I was doing, of like lengthening your neck and opening your chest and these kinds of things are terrible for running. They're great for dance, but they're terrible for running. That's fabulously fascinating to me because my mother was a dance teacher. I had the ballet background. And guess what I hate doing? Running. I hate running. Like in high school, in high school, we had, you know, we had the presidential physical fitness test. You had to run the 600-yard whatever. I'd be like, you know, (laughs) it was awful. It was like torture. And you feel like you're pounding, right? It feels like a really brutal pounding on your body. So let's go back to your personal story because we we stopped mid-story. You were talking about how you started studying runners and watching them. Keep going with that because I I was like, wow, this is so interesting. So um, at the time, I was also training to become a Feldenkrais practitioner because I had encountered that method. It saved my dance career a number of years before. So helped me get past really bad Achilles tendonitis that no one had been able to help me with and become a much, much better dancer. So I wanted to become a Feldenkrais practitioner anyway. I wanted to, you know, it liberated me to do, to fulfill my dreams, which is really what the Feldenkrais method does for anybody. It allows you like your, whatever your intention, whatever your dream, whatever you see yourself doing, you know, but there are gaps in your awareness of how to do that thing. So that the results you're getting are not the results you were aiming for, you know, same as a baby trying to roll over and grab that toy and missing or trying to, you know, sit up or walk or whatever, you know, it gives you a methodology for learning how to fill in those gaps, correct your mistakes, know which habits apply to which situations, and just without having to think about it, just spontaneously be able to do the things that you picture yourself doing that you want to do. And so for me, that was running. So I used my Feldenkrais professional training program, this is a four-year program, as my laboratory. Like I was trying to run all through it, and I would like run, and then I would do a lesson, and then I would run again and see what's different. And I had some breakthroughs, and by the time I was done, I loved running. It felt great and easy. And in fact, I preferred it to dancing. And that was fine because I'd done what I wanted as a dancer and I was ready to move on. So let me ask you this. You hated it and then you loved it. Is it because your body adapted or because you adapted your running? That's a good question. It's because I adapted my running. It's because I finally learned what, how to coordinate myself. So it was no longer uncomfortable. No. That's where I've just had that aha moment. So I'm I'm kind of a little excited. About, about oh, good. My work is done. We can finish right here then. And that was all. <laughs> Thank you for the life lesson. No. <laughs> so let's start off for non-running listeners like me who always thought we hated it. But now that you mentioned it, it's so likely that we're just doing it all wrong. So I just assumed not a runner. I can walk. I can, you know, I can dance. I could tap dance for you right now, but I'm not a runner. But what is the best way for non-runners like me who thought we hated it, but maybe it's just our form, how should we start? What do we do? Well, I'll talk you just briefly through the six key elements of form. And these are going to be for folks who have looked into this before or who maybe are runners and, you know, get Runner's World and read online and get coached and all of that. This Some of this stuff is going to be different from what you hear because coming into running as an outsider – I was able to see different things. And so this is the stuff that has worked for 20 years now with my clients of all levels. So your six things, you need to, key thing, you need to get your core in action. 
So people talk a lot about core stability and it's recommended for runners. And there's a lot of confusion about what that means. To a lot of people, it means hold your core still. But think about it. You can't, you've got one leg on one side and one leg on the other side, and you're only going to be on one of those at a time. You have to shift and change your body in order to balance on the one leg and on the other leg. So your pelvis is going to want to make a movement. Your upper body is going to want to turn. They're going to turn opposite each other and also sort of side shift. And that drives your legs and it balances you so that you can balance without undue stress on each leg and get good leverage against the ground. It is critical for that easy, flowing, not pounding, feel like you can run all day, feel a little like you're flying kind of feeling. And if you look at kids who haven't yet spent a lot of time behind the school desk and who've been really active growing up, that's how they all run. So that's critical. You need to lean forward. So that means not just your upper body, but also your pelvis. So everything kind of tips forward from the ankles. Because if you ever, as a child, you tried to balance like a broom handle or a stick or something on your hand, and then if you kind of got it balanced and then you tried to run with it and it just fell backwards, right? And you need to get it kind of tipped forward so you're kind of pushing it forward because the direction of force is going forward. So that's the exact same as you, your whole body when you run. You need to be pushed in running. You are in the air for a moment between each footstep. You're pushing yourself forward and up in a way that's different from walking. And so you got to line yourself up to do that. And that means leaning forward. And that will be just a little bit if you're not running very fast. And it'll be a lot more if you are running very fast. You know, sometimes people say run tall or stay upright or whatever, but that's wrong. You know, you don't want to hunch or slouch, but you do need to lean. I'm going to be honest. There's a guy who runs in my neighborhood. He runs 10 miles a day. And he runs past my house and he's leaned forward. And I'm always like, I don't think he should be running like that. Apparently, he knows what he's doing. (laughs) I should not be armchair running coaching. (laughs) That's the thing is context is everything. And for the forces that you feel and experience in running, like as long as your nervous system is able to sense and respond, you'll make the right choices. But they won't look right from the outside to someone who's not experiencing those forces, right? Also important to remember that, you know, not every runner has perfect form that Some people break down easily. Some people don't break down easily. Some people have terrible form and never get injured. So you you can't always extrapolate from like, well, this person runs really fast marathons, so they must be moving right. Well, not necessarily. You said something earlier when you were talking about putting equal force on each side of the body and, you know, core stability. So I've found, and this is a conversation I've had with my chiropractor a lot, is that most people have one side of their body that they are naturally weaker on or that they are not, you know, well balanced on. Like if you stand on one foot and you lift up the other foot, you might be able to stand on one foot. But if you switch sides, you're going to fall over. How much of being a good runner is like getting that under control? It's important because in running, you need to get onto and off of each leg equally easily. It doesn't have to be perfectly symmetrical because who's perfectly symmetrical, but it needs to be good enough. And that's a sort of a deeper issue. So that may require a more in-depth learning experience, much more like, again, you know, what you did when you were first learning how to walk as a baby, you know, more experiential learning because you're bringing deep habits to that. And on that level, I mean, that's where, you know, in my sessions, in my coaching, in my online courses, you know, we dig into that stuff. So I think on average, probably... Oh, gosh, it would be interesting to know, but I would certainly think at least half the people who, who want to start running and just go out and they have the right ideas about running form, the ones, my ideas about running form, they're going to be fine, as long as you're also sensible about your training progression and you don't do too much too soon and break down your weakest link, because everybody's got a weakest link, you know, so like sensible training progression is part of that, recovering from each run, that kind of thing. But the the rest may need some more in-depth work to learn, well, how is it? What are you doing with your whole body that puts your weight in such an unstable way on the right foot? And then how can you switch that and adjust it so it's equally easily easy on both sides? 
And that things you're doing with your head, your spine, your hips, your arms. I mean, it involves everything. So you talked about not doing too much at once. You know, we've all heard of programs like Couch to 5K, for example, you know, where that you're like running a little, walking a little. What do you think about programs like that to kind of train the the newbie runner to you know, building up their endurance and not doing too much too soon? Well, I think that kind of program is great. You know, sometimes people are like, I'm going to be, especially in January, I'm going to become a runner now. I'm going to go out for a run every morning, right? And that doesn't last a week because you're not giving yourself recovery time. Because we don't get fitter by working out. We get fitter by recovering from our workouts. That's where the fitness grows. A workout breaks you down. And that propels your body to build back stronger, Right. So that means getting, it means good nutrition, it means getting enough sleep, and it means for your age and your body and your genetics, what's the right frequency of uh, challenging workouts. And for any beginning runner that of any age, that is not going to be every day of the week. <laughs> so nobody should be doing more than three days, three non-consecutive days a week to start. Like two, you need at least two or you just never get any momentum. And three would be the max. And lots of people will only ever run that often. I mean, depends on your goals long term. It's what I do, even still. Yeah, we really tend to think that, you know, if I'm going to be a runner, then every day I'm going to get out and run and really forgetting about the recovery is important. So I'm really glad you brought that up, especially since this is January resolution season. So resolve to do it in a smart way. (laughs) (laughs) That's important. Well, exactly. And then the other thing that's great about that Couch to 5K thing is that it's a walk-run program. And so the other mistake besides I'm going to go out every morning now, I'm going to do it, is I'm going to run like hell every time. (laughs) I'm going to run as fast as I can because that's what running is, right? It isn't. You need to start, like, especially if you've been sedentary, but also if you're fit but you haven't been running, so many body systems need to strengthen. Your heart and your lungs and your circulatory system need to strengthen and adapt. And so your heart's a muscle too. You can't be exhausting that any more than you can be exhausting your legs and not letting it recover. And so a walk-run program where you like, you know, run a minute and walk four minutes and run a minute and walk four minutes like that for, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour. And then you gradually increase the length of the, you know, each week you slightly increase the length of the runs and decrease the length of the walks is a great way to start. And there's actually, there's a coach named Jeff Galloway who has programs available online and he kind of owns the walk run strategy. He's got training plans and all kinds of advice. He's actually doesn't understand running form. So ignore that part of what he puts out there, but everything else, just about how to like really do the walk run things so that it builds your foot fitness instead of breaking it down. And it gives you a sustainable habit that you can have for the rest of your life. He's a great source. So my biggest problem with running, I used to be, um, I'm not now, but I used to be more of a, a long distance walker. My favorite thing to do when I lived in Denver was to leave my house and pick a destination. I called myself a destination walker. And I would be like, I'm going to walk here. It's 13.2 miles from my house. And I would walk there and then I would call somebody to come pick me up. <laughs> so I used to be a lot more. Oh, I walked a lot. I loved it. But I would always think, oh, if I could just run a little bit of it, then I could do it faster. And so I would be like, okay, I'm going to walk a mile and then I'm going to run like a quarter mile. But it would take me another mile to get my breathing back under control. So I apparently don't know how to breathe. How much does breathing come into play with being a successful runner? And how can you help a person with their breathing? Well, so a couple things there. I think you're running. Most likely it's not that you're a bad breather, but just that the effort was too intense for you or too long for your level of fitness. So um, a shorter bout of running and running a little slower when you were running would have been the way to tackle that. And if you kept with it, you know, cutting it down to where your breathing can recover in your allotted walk time would have let you keep going with that strategy. And then you wouldn't have been so, you know, a month later, you would have been like, wow, I'm not nearly so winded as I was. 
So I think that was that was an intensity issue. I mean, I do have exercise induced asthma. So that I mean, that could be a little bit of play in it. But I always thought, wow, I'm in really great shape. I can walk this far. I, I mean, I was walking like, you know, four and a half miles in an hour, five out miles an hour, depending on, you know, whether it's at the beginning or end of my walk. So I was a quick walker. But I thought ramping it up a little bit, I got this. And then my breathing would just tank as soon as I would start running. So it could just be me. But I've heard other people say, Oh, no, I can't breathe it because I can't I can't run because I can't breathe. Yeah, so there's a there's a lot there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I found out I want to troubleshoot your thing. <laughs> like this were one of my Q&A calls. I just know in general, people have, they struggle with breathing while they're running. And I know that's huge. Yeah. So here's, let me see if I can quickly, the all the key factors here. So first, if you have exercise-induced asthma, you need to be really warm before you start running. You need to have started sweating already. And then your airway opens better. So I don't know if you were starting off with a run or running too early in your walk. That's a possibility. I have seldom had to help runners with breathing in my practice, because when we sort out the rest of their form, the breathing just solves itself. So that is almost always the case. Do you think it's because you're not working your body as hard because you're working it more efficiently? It's two things. It's yes, it's not nearly as intense to run because your effort, like this is also people have this idea that like good for you need to be strong for good running form and good form is harder, but it's not good form is easier than any other way of running because you're using your body the way it really is meant to work. And so that really lowers your heart rate, it lowers the intensity for any speed. And so yeah, then you don't need to breathe as hard. But also good form is the same as good breathing. Like you're, you have one body, it's breathing and running at the same time. And so the movement that is good running form is also good breathing. And that has, there are three main characteristics for that. And I just, long story, never mind. Anyway, <laughs> the queen of digressions. So the first is the core action. Your diaphragm has to be free to move down and up, just doing little chest breaths. And when you get that core action, the movement of your pelvis in your rib cage, you, it creates a twist right around the area where your diaphragm is, which means that you can't be gripping with those muscles in a way that prevents your diaphragm from moving. So then your diaphragm can really move well, and it's so much easier to breathe and to draw the air deeper into your lungs where your lungs are bigger and you have more uh, vasculature so that you can get more transfer of oxygen into your bloodstream. So that's number one. And that by itself, when a runner gets that, it normally makes a huge difference. Number two is your airway has to be open. So with your forward lean, you're not going to look at the ground, right? If you take you the way you normally stand and you tip you forward, you're looking at the ground, right? But you don't do that for running. Then you adjust your head so you're looking out at the horizon, which means your chin is sticking out a bit. A lot of people are told not to do this. No one tells you to do it. I call it face forward. That It's actually your face that leads you in running. You need to make sure the rest of you follows. <laughs> but, because sometimes people kind of leave the rest of them back. and they, It's not text neck because your whole body sways forward differently from if you stick your head forward at the computer when it just makes you hunch. So when you do that, it opens your airway. And in fact, if you've ever studied CPR, you know that they teach that movement. And funny thing about that is one of the researchers into um, the head position that opens the airway best was Sir Roger Bannister, who was a doctor. And he was also the first person to run a mile in less than four minutes. And he wasn't studying it for running purpose. But anyway, so when you get the core action, when you get the good forward lean with the face forward, you know, with your, your chin not tucked and like a lot of runners run with their head a little bit retracted like this, totally closes the airway really hard to breathe, also hard to run. So core form and then breathing will just follow. Yeah, pretty much. And then to any extent that it doesn't, then I recommend you look at somebody else's work. There's this guy, Patrick McCown. He has a book called The Oxygen Advantage. And it's about breathing technique in specific, learning how to breathe through your nose, learning how to, to reset your body's sense of what's the right amount of oxygen, carbon dioxide in your blood, it's, is very helpful, especially for people who truly have exercise-induced asthma or some other breathing problems. So, but sort out your form first because that by itself and warm up enough because that by itself may just solve the problem. That's so helpful. And I'm sure my form as a walker is totally different than the form of a runner. 
So, and I was probably not adapting at all from one mode to the other. So that that's so much to think about and so interesting. I just love that all of the things we have in our heads is why we can't run. It's something we can overcome. And so, you know, we've got in our head, I'm not a runner. I can't run. I'm not good at running. I can't breathe right. I'm not good at that. We can actually, with the right form and technique, we can we can do it. Yeah, I mean, just listening to you talk has made me excited. I mean, like, and I'm, I just sat here and told you if I'm running, a bear's chasing me. And now I'm like, hmm, can I run? <laughs> the one thing that practically everyone who comes to me for help says, the more experienced runners, is, you, you know, maybe they have races that they care about. Maybe they don't. A lot of people just run alone. It's their form of meditation. Fun, it's their mental health. The main thing that no matter what kind of runner they are, they say to me is, I just want to make sure that I can run for the rest of my life. That's where you get to. I mean, again, it's a fundamental human gate. It's part of our biological inheritance as human beings to be able to crawl, to walk, and to run. And when you can access that in a way that is, you know, as nature intended, it just, it becomes incredibly precious to you and a wellspring of all kinds of good things in your life. So I have a question for you. And I know I'm hoping you can direct some people who are listening. I used to run a little group on Facebook for intermittent fasters who were also very fitness minded individuals. And we had quite a few runners. And I'm thinking of one specifically, who was chronically injured and always frustrated, because she wanted to run marathons, half marathons, but she was constantly having to take time off for injuries from foot injuries to stress fractures to IT bands, to hip, to back injuries. And I, I mean, I kept thinking, goodness, you're gonna have to hang up your tennis shoes. I feel like it, listening to you, she could learn a lot from you and possibly, you know, keep herself from having these injuries going on. What, how do you work with people who are having chronic problems like that? And can you do it distance? Like, could this girl in the UK get with you and work with you to help her running and and run pain-free? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been working online almost exclusively since 2016. So pre-pandemic by a lot, (laughs) thank goodness. So I have online courses and then I also do online coaching, which we do with video analysis. And then I send learning materials. And I would say, you know, at least a third of runners coming to me, if not half, are in that same boat where it's not just one injury and it hasn't just happened once. It's a cycle of recurring injury that they've been to all the doctors, they've been to all the physios with PTs, they've, you know, been to the Pilates classes and the yoga and it, and they take time off and it gets better. And as soon as they start running again, it comes back, which is your sign that it's coming from how you're moving. So learning to move different is key. And so the Feldenkrais method is great for this because it's such it's so low stress that even if you're too injured to run, you still can do the lessons. And the one exception to that is if you currently have an active fracture that does need to heal, you need to be cleared for exercise again before you. But see, a lot of the things that really hurt on runners are just inflammation. And inflammation is fundamentally, as I'm sure you know, it's not bad. It's actually inflammation is our body's healing process. The problem is when, when inflammation is chronic, we need to ask why. And again, it's like in your town, if there's one street where they're constantly doing road work, the answer is not to stop the road work. It's to ask why the street keeps breaking down, right? Same thing in your body. If you have chronic inflammation somewhere, there's something that you're doing and how you move that chronically breaks down that area. And you don't want to stop it healing, but you do want to get to the root of it doesn't have to heal again, all over again, every single night. And when you get to the root of that, a runner can feel better amazingly fast. So Achilles problems, plantar fascia, um, IT band problems, you know, runner's knee, all this kind of stuff. Sometimes it's slow, but sometimes it's fast. You just shift that stress, and a couple of days later, the inflammation has done its job. You've healed, and you haven't re-injured, and you already feel a lot better than you did after three months of PT last time. So is your work limited to runners, or can it help anybody who has pain? Like, Do you work with people who are walking, hiking, that sort of thing, or you just strictly work with runners? 
When I had an entirely in-person practice, which I did for 10 years in New York City, uh, my practice was about two-thirds runners and one-third anybody else who wanted Feldenkrais lessons. Walkers, people with back pain, you know, whatever, uh, musicians. And um, since I went online, then I focused on runners, but my flagship course, the my online running camp, the Balanced Runner System online camp, has a guide for walkers, so people who walk or hike. The lessons are absolutely applicable, and there's a guide to help you make that translation. And I have also, I've had a couple private coaching clients who, while they were runners, they had a condition called runner's dystonia, and even walking was hard for them. And we really only just worked with their walking for a long stretch of time. So, you know, that's work I can do that way as well. If a person has a really different set of concerns, you know, you may be better off looking for a local Feldenkrais practitioner who you can see in person and who can really meet you at right at those concerns. So how much does the shoe matter in preventing pain and injury? Uh, it's the opposite of what you think. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Would you like to know how much research there is showing that running shoes prevent pain and injury? I'm going to guess not much, right? Since we'd be surprised, uh. There is research showing that one shoe might be better than other shoes. But the whole like modern running shoe is just an incredible feat of marketing, I'll tell you. That said, you know, most of us grew up in conventional shoes, right? Like me, I grew up in sneakers. I didn't grow up a runner, but cushioned athletic shoes, right? And most of us did, and even for walking. And by the way, that's not even great for your walking. And so uh, you need it, it's an adaptation process to get out of the shoes. But there is research showing that the less expensive your shoes are, the less likely you are to get injured in them. Wait, what? Yeah. The less expensive, say that again? Mm-hmm. They are less structured and they make your foot work more naturally so that they're stronger. And they let you feel the ground more because your nervous system, you need to be able to feel where you are in space. You need to be able to feel where the ground is. Like, think about walking across a bed. Like, if you walk across a mattress, you feel like, squishy, you know, and you sort of like, it's really easy to lose your balance. Well, that what that's what cushioned shoes are. What kind of shoes do you wear when you run? I wear minimalist shoes. There are companies that make uh, shoes that have no cushioning. They don't have a heel lift, so, you know, most like running shoes, you'll see the heel is higher than the forefoot. Like, why would you run in high heels? And in fact, your foot doesn't work right if you do that. But if you're really used to that, you got to be gradual transitioning out of it. You can't just take them. I mean, most people don't manage to just take them off and that's it. And most street shoes have high heels anyway. Even for men, you know, the heel's a little lifted. So it's an adaptation. But the shoes I wear are completely flat, Utterly flexible. You can wring them like a washcloth and roll them up. No arch support. The arch is a support structure. Arches hold up massive stone cathedrals. That's what an arch does. And the what makes an arch fall apart is if you lift up, if, if you push up on it from underneath, it breaks down. It destroys the structural integrity. So, And if you transition out of arch support in your footwear, your own feet arches will get stronger and People will be like, no, there must have been a mistake. Somebody told you you had flat feet. You don't have flat feet. That's My mind is absolutely blown. I do wear minimalist shoes for like 12 and 13 hour shifts in the ER on hard floors. And people are like, how do you do that? Don't your feet kill you? And I'm like, no, my feet feel amazing. It's when I put on a tennis shoe or something else that my feet kill me. And I limp out at the end of my work weekend. So yeah, it blows people away. That's fabulous news. I just buy these cheap ones off Amazon, honestly. They're like $30 and I have them in all the colors. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to get some of those. <laughs> I shared them in the Life Lessons community and a bunch of people bought them and they love them. So they're always popping on. I don't know. I'll have to send it to you. It's some, I don't know what the brand is. It's some just off brand that I get on Amazon. They're literally like $32. And if you wear the little thin insole on the inside out, it's just a little, you know, thin thing. You can buy replacements for them. They're great. They last forever. I mean, the, the stuff I wear is a little more expensive than that. I mean, they have, uh, I wear zero XERO shoes. 
And they make, you know, they make running shoes. They make hiking and trail shoes with a good grip. They even make winter boots, which the three things that you want to look for and that research is validated. And actually, American College of Sports Medicine shoe guidelines in 2014 cover these things. So you want a less than six millimeter drop from heel to toe, ideally flat. You want no arch support or motion control or stability components. It needs to have a wide toe box because toes are supposed to spread. So the tips of the toes should be farther apart than the ball of the foot. And a lot of athletic shoes, well, like normal shoes, have a pointy foot, right? When you squeeze the toes together, it really reduces your stability. So Yeah, when they first came out, they had those Vibram five-finger t- shoes, like, and I wore them. Oh, yeah, my son was in middle school, and he had to have them. Yeah, they sure did start to stink. <laughs> Those were the smelliest shoes. I was like, woo, I can walk by his bedroom and there they are. Uh, back in the day. So we are almost out of time, but I want to finish up. Like if someone is listening today, they are interested in your course, you know, maybe they're not a runner, but they're a walker. And and you mentioned that could help them. Or if they want to work with you personally, how and where do they find you and what resources do you have for them? So my website is balancedrunner.com. The best place, so uh, like I say, I offer this online camp. It's six weeks. It's um, foundational no matter what level runner you are. So I've had world record holders go through there. I have had lots of beginners go through there. Everybody takes it at their own level. Doesn't matter. Especially if you have like right-left imbalance issues or you've had a lot of injury, you struggled in the past, that's your best first move. But if you want to dip your toe in, I also have a free challenge called the mind you're running challenge because it's about how your mind directs your body about understanding how to run rather than stretching or strengthening so it's 10 minute lesson once a day for for um seven days plus a bonus warm-up and if you go to balancedrunner.com and just scroll down on any blog page or search for mind you're running you know, you'll see a widget that says start here or just type in mind you're running the search bar and it'll come up. Um, so that's free and you can try it out if you're just want to get started running and you just want to know like what are the key things about running form, you'll get that from the challenge. So I really recommend that. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I've learned a lot and Sherry, we might be runners after all. I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Jay. You have to tell me how it goes. I will. (laughs) Thank you. you. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Bye-bye. Before we get to the listener-led lesson of the week, we want to take a minute to tell you about one of the companies that makes it possible for us to bring you the podcast. And today I'm going to talk about Shapa. Shapa is the world's most revolutionary scale, coupled with a personalized program with daily actions and reminders created by a leading team of scientists and nutritionists. Together, the Shapa system creates sustainable, long-term behavior changes that will transform your body and your health. No numbers, no judgment. That's right, there are no numbers on this scale. Rather, it's connected to an app, and the app gives you a color as a feedback as to what your weight trends are doing over time. Are you slowly decreasing body fat and having weight loss? Are you maintaining? Get feedback without the day-to-day normal weight fluctuations that might affect the way you feel about yourself and your success on a daily basis. My weight fluctuates a lot from day to day, and I've always used the scale as a way to assess which foods don't agree with my body and leave me inflamed the next day. Something that I figured out is that I can get that information from the Shapa even though it doesn't display the weight. Every day it gives you your Shapa age. The day-to-day fluctuations show up there. If my Shapa age changes by seven years overnight, I know my body is retaining fluid that day. And then if I clean up my eating, I can see my Shapa age go down the next day. The most fun part is when your Shapa age is significantly less than your biological age. Do you remember what mine was? Like 21 or something once? It got down to 18 at one point. <laughs> crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is fun. It was so fun. But when it said 18, I'm like, look, I'm 18. Shapa, thank you. So funny. So you can get your Shapa scale at myshapa.com and use the code life lessons, one word. And we also have a link on our website at lifelessonscommunity.com under the shop with us tab and in show notes. 
Next, we have a segment that we call our listener-led lesson. It could be a life hack, a book recommendation, a special recipe, a kitchen tip, or anything along those lines. Today's listener-led lesson comes from Joy. We have all heard of gratitude journals, but I have a huge aversion to journaling of any kind. Once I open the pages, my mind goes blank. What I started doing instead was to write on a small notepad every single day one good thing that happened or something I was grateful for. I fold each page and put them in a pretty jar. At the end of the month, I pull them all out and read them out loud. It's a great way to wrap the month up, seeing all that I have to be grateful for in my life. I love that. And I love that her name is Joy. I know. Can I tell you a really funny story (laughs) about that? Every time I hear the words reading out loud, I think back when Cal was little and he was, you know, I don't know, he might have been in like first grade. He was little and he was reading. So I was like, here, read this for me. And he was like reading it to himself. And I'm like, no, read it out loud. And then he started yelling. And I'm like, why are you yelling? And he said, you told me to read it loud. I'm like, oh, no. Anyway, so every time I hear read out loud, it makes me think of little young reader Cal yelling his reading to me. At the end of each show, we share a motivational quote from a listener. And today's quote comes from Sue, who also shared last week's quote. So thank you, Sue, for your contributions. To everybody else listening, I know you have a favorite quote or poem that you want to share. Take a moment and email me at connect at lifelessonscommunity.com. Share about why that quote is important to you, why you love it, how it helped you through a difficult time, or how it could help another, or anything else that's thought-provoking. Sue's quote for this week is, To know what you prefer, instead of humbly saying amen to what the world tells you you ought to prefer, is to have kept your soul alive. And that's Robert Louis Stevenson. That's huge. To know what you prefer. Rather than just saying amen to what the world tells you you ought to prefer. That's huge. Early in my marriage, I saw this quote and I wrote it out in calligraphy and painted a frame for it. I put it in my bathroom where I would see it every morning. I was not young when I got married. I was 31. But I still felt bound by what I thought were others' expectations of me. I still felt like I was trying to live up to who I perceived my family, especially my parents, thought I should be. As a daughter, as a teacher, as a wife. I wanted to feel like I was making my life, my soul, my own. And so I did. I have chosen many paths that my family has perceived as being out there, but I am a happier person for it. I'm happy to say that my husband never calls me crazy or makes me think my choices are weird. His acceptance helps me. But even more than that, I'm so glad to embrace the things that make my life so much richer, so much more my own. Thank you for sharing that, Sue. When I was reading that, I felt like I could have written it. And I have to say, I had a confusing moment there while we were recording because I thought they were my words. And then I realized I would never paint a frame for anything. So I didn't write that. (laughs) You're like, wait a minute, not me. I was like, this isn't me. So Sue, yeah, I felt you when I was reading that earlier. I was like, yep. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. I had a lot of fun with it. Make sure to join our Facebook community. It's called Life Lessons with Jen and Sherry. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And we'd love for you to leave an iTunes review so we can reach others. Do you have a story to share for our good news segment, a listener-led lesson, or a motivational quote that means something to you? Or do you have an area of expertise you would like to share as our featured guest for the week as we present our weekly life lesson? Email us at connect at lifelessonscommunity.com and listen each week to see if we share your story or tip. Until next week, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.